Hi, I'm Steve Clemens, and I have a question. If so many economists and politicians from both political parties saw it coming, why didn't Joe Biden see inflation coming? Let's get to the bottom line. Just one year ago, optimism floated through the air. The economy was booming after a gigantic pandemic relief package of $1.9 trillion. People were buying new cars and old cars and stuff, lots of stuff, on Amazon. Some even decided that they didn't want to work for a while. Cash was flowing and extended unemployment benefits and rent relief paid many folks more than they made before the pandemic. Well, guess what economists call that kind of situation? A classic overstimulated economy. Overnight, there was much more demand than supply. Then boom, the supply crisis hits. There wasn't enough to buy. Prices surged, and that's all before Russia even invaded Ukraine to shoot up the price of gas and all forms of energy. The Debbie Downers were out there shouting, inflation is coming, inflation is coming. But who wants to hear that? Joe Biden didn't want his folks out there saying the I word. Now, the White House may be finally admitting that it got this all wrong. But what can he do now? Today, we're talking to Doug Holtz-Eakin, former director of the Congressional Budget Office and current president of the American Action Forum, a domestic policy think tank here in Washington, D.C. Doug, it's really great to be with you. Um, Thanks, Steve. You, you've heard where I'm going with this. I'm sort of interested in, in, in how, in economics, so many people can look at the same ecosystem and see it so differently. But from a policy perspective, if you get inflation wrong, you're getting a lot wrong. Um, am I right? Uh, you are. Um, once you let inflation get ingrained, as we have, you essentially have no good choices. Uh, choice number one is live with the inflation. That's clearly not going to fly. People are very unhappy. Or do the things necessary to take that overstimulated economy and slow it down. Raise interest rates uh, in the extreme, raise taxes, cut spending. Uh, all of that produces weaker housing markets, weaker labor markets, weaker retail sales. That's bad news for American people. So you're looking at a situation where there is no good news. All the choices are hard ones. So this is June of 2022, going into July. An election yeah. is coming up in November. It's hard to imagine things getting worse where they were, given the toxic political situation we've had in this country. We saw what happened unfold in January 6th. Now we're seeing the price of, you know, uh, gas, of, of, of basic supplies, baby formula, of, of peanut butter. I mean, you, you just name it out there and prices are surging. I'm just interested as someone who has been in the halls of power, who have advised presidential candidates, you know, what would you do in this situation? What would you advise President Biden to do in this situation? He has the following very simple problem. Uh, if you look at the monthly reports on personal income and outlays and the behavior of American households, they are spending money. They're continuing to spend money. They have a lot in the bank from the, the big stimulus checks, and, and, the, and the spending's fine. And the, that sort of part of the economy is fine. If you look at the consumer sentiment surveys, we have consumer confidence at the lowest point since the depths of the 1980 recession. So people are behaving as if they've got the money, but they don't feel good about it. And they're really unhappy, and they're blaming the president and the leadership. If you're in that situation, you have essentially two choices. Choice number one is change the subject. I don't think that will work. They've tried that on a number of occasions. Uh, choice number two is acknowledge some responsibility and, and take action. And so in similar situations, we have seen presidents let some people go, say, look, my economic advisors have failed the American people. I'm going to get a new team in. 
And I wouldn't be shocked to see that. You know, one of the things I'm always intrigued with, and, you know, you and I have talked about economic issues for a long time, and it's always fair, you know, to have contending perspectives into debate, which is what happens even among the Federal Reserve Board governors. But I want to go back to a tweet that Heather Boucher tweeted out in June of 2021. Let's show this tweet. It reads, as the virus is contained, the economy is improving step by step. Today's data on inflation is the latest indicator that things are both moving in the right direction and that we have supply chain hiccups. Now, in part, this this tweet was in response to folks like Senator Joe Manchin at the time. Uh, and you began hearing a chorus of folks, included some leading Democrat economists like Lawrence Summers, a former Secretary of the Treasury, Jason Furman, a former Chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors under President Obama, saying, we've got a problem, folks. I'm just interested, you are a practitioner in this field, you've been a CBO, you advise Senator McCain. How could this tweet be one, uh, you know, at some level, how does this tweet get the the reward or the condemnation it deserves and how do you go back and say wow you know Manchin was basically calling something early on that he was worried about so early on many people were worried about this so so let's dial the clock back to the key moment which is March of 2021 uh, the American Rescue Plan is being debated in con- Congress 1.9 trillion dollars in uh, spending and tax cuts uh, big stimulus and At that moment, the posture of the White House and the Democrats in Congress is, this economy needs a lot of help, and we need to give it something very big. And and the motto you heard was, better err on the size of being too big than too small, and and they pushed hard. I testified about the American Rescue Plan at the time, and all of the data indicated the economy was growing at 6.5%, as indeed it turned out it did in the first quarter of 2021. There was no need for stimulus. So this was a political call that they were going to get, try to take credit for the recovery by having this big stimulus, and they made a big policy error. Larry Summers, to his credit, said it at the time, said this is going to cause a lot of inflation. Other people were worried about it. I didn't think it would cause a lot of inflation, full disclosure. I thought it would produce a big boom in asset prices because people wouldn't be able to spend the money and they'd go buy cryptos and houses, and we'd seen some of that already. But either way, we were going to force the Fed's hand to do something, and I thought it was a mistake. That White House tweet was trying to say, look, it's not our fault. The inflation is from the supply side. We didn't do it. And we've got this growth and we want to take credit for it. I I don't think they get credit for the growth. It was there anyway. They inherited it. And you only measure supply relative to the demand. If they hadn't done the rescue plan, the supply problems wouldn't have been so prevalent. So I I think they really missed the boat analytically on this, and and they tried to cover it politically, and they've been in trouble ever since. You know, one of the other dimensions out there in terms of big spending in the economy um, didn't didn't happen uh, was the Build Back Better package. The early versions of the Build Back Better plan, folks, were about $6 trillion. That's what Bernie Sanders wanted at the, you know, thing. And then getting it to three and a half was, was... a huge controversy. And then the even bigger controversy was getting that down to $1.75 trillion. You know, Senator Manchin was looked at as sort of the devil incarnate for kind of suggesting what it was. And now that didn't happen either. And maybe when a climate energy bill or something comes along, it'll be $900 billion or a trillion. But the point is, you saw this. I guess my question to you, and we don't even have to play with the $6 trillion, what if the $3 trillion, $3.5 trillion, or the $1.75 trillion package had come on when it did? Would things, would it have impacted these numbers? Would it have applied, you know, impacted inflation, the supply chain crisis, 
you know, the, the, the supply crisis in general. How would that have played out if it had come to be? So the supply crisis is not complicated. It's the fact that we have a pandemic and globally workers have been unable to go to regular shifts at their factories, regular uh, shifts at transportation. And as a result, things are all messed up in the, in the supply chain. That, that's, that's the pandemic. That gets solved only by the public health response around the globe. So you have to live with that. That's there. Given that it's there, you can't have too much demand. And I think Senator Manchin has a really uh, saved uh, the, the Congress and the administration by, by stopping this. The political dynamic was, we want to do all this stuff. Extremely broad scope to the Build Back Better um, uh, plan. And as the numbers had to get smaller, the way they did it was, <clears throat> let's front load these programs, have them only exist for a year, two years, three years. Let's back load the taxes and make it all add up to a better uh, uh, degree. Well, if you think about that, front-loaded spending, back-loaded pay-fors, that's a stimulus bill. And that would have been the American Rescue Plan all over again, bigger, in an economy that was clearly already having a big inflation problem, and it would have been uh, a worse policy error than the American Rescue Plan was. So um, they, they really uh, benefited from Manchin's insistence that they not go forward. Well, listen, let's listen to President Biden for a moment, you know, state the reality of how he sees things right now. The idea we're going to be able to, you know, click a switch, bring down the cost of gasoline is not likely in the near term, nor is it with regard to food. So he's basically saying we're stuck in this situation for a while. Inflation, we're not going to be able to, you know, flip a switch. I'm just interested in what policy levers are out there. And I understand that the Federal Reserve is independent, allegedly, from the White House. But when you kind of look at the question of the big role the government plays out there, you know, in terms of talking about what sorts of, you know, we used to talk about soft landings, um, you know, to, to try to bring an economy down to sort of manage the cycles in economy. I'm just interested in knowing from you what are the, the levers that can be moved that the president is saying he doesn't have to deal with gas, to deal with food, to deal with inflation? So first, let me say that the inflation problem is the fact that shelter has inflation of five and a half percent. So that was uh, essentially one um, percent at the beginning of the president's term. Um, that's not something that moves quickly. That's not like food where you see it bounce up and down, certainly not like energy where global markets can move overnight and, and raise and lower the price of oil dramatically. Shelter is rents and it's owning homes and the inflation started slowly and it's never yet peaked. It's gone up month after month after month. And if you've got five and a half percent shelter inflation, you can't hit the Fed's 2% target unless everything else is zero or negative. And that's not going to happen. So if you think about the problem, the problem is how do we slow down the housing market, stop it from being so red hot that we've got year-over-year -year housing prices going up 20%, year-over-year -year rents going up 20%, and get the overall economy back to a, a reasonable place. You have two choices. You can do it with taxes and spending, or you can do it with the Fed. The Fed's got a plan, and its plan is simple. We're going to raise interest rates, and in particular, make mortgage interest rates higher. That'll make mortgages less attractive, which makes buying a house less attractive, which makes building houses less attractive, which means that you don't put uh, refrigerators in those houses, you don't put furnaces in those houses, you don't pave the driveways, you don't do the electrical work. You have an impact on the broad swath of the economy by cooling down the housing market. And so that's, that's what the Fed's up to. It's largely the housing market. It'll also show up in 
autos and other consumer durables would make those things more expensive, slow down the economy. Unfortunately, if you're in a, a White House, you don't want to be seen as just sitting by and letting someone else solve the problem. You want to do something. The things they would have to do would be the reverse of the, the, the stimulus, raise taxes, cut spending. That's not going to happen. This is an election year, so there's very little substantively they can do. The one thing that stands out to me is they could uh, roll back some of the Trump-era tariffs, particularly on China, and have a, a discernible one-time impact on the, the level of prices in the economy. And I have been surprised at their reluctance to pull that lever. That's something I at least would advise them to do. So you, you mentioned trade. I mean, and I, I'd love to just go a notch further in that because, you know, when the, when the president laid out his Indo-Pacific economic framework recently, there wasn't a return to the Trans-Pacific Partnership. There wasn't a region-wide region uh, trade deal put on the table. And, and if you look on the, the gas and fuel side of it, you know, you, the president is going to be meeting uh, uh, with the Saudi crown prince, uh, allegedly, uh, uh, Mohammed bin Salman and others. Are there things that can be done in terms of whether domestic in the United States or because we're the biggest you know, oil and energy producer in the world, but with the Saudis or the other players to basically help, you know, create a lot more uh, demand than we're doing on um, oil, gas and other forms of energy? Certainly on both fronts, you could, in principle, um, get additional production. It takes some time, and they would have to acknowledge the need, um, essentially do a U-turn on their climate strategy, which has been to really call out fuel sources as the strategy. We're not going to use coal. We're not going to use oil. We're not going to use natural gas. I, I don't agree with that strategy, but that has been their strategy. They'd have to do a U-turn on that, and they're reluctant politically to do that. And they would have to, to kind of deal with the Saudis where – you know, let's let's just be delicate. I mean, relations are not at their all-time best, I mean, and there's a lot of concern about uh, the Saudis. And so I think they've been hesitant to get into that game, and, and they're, they're trying instead to set expectations that gasoline and oil prices will remain high. Um, I, I think they also have a general trade problem. If you look at the, the framework they just uh, announced, the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, that's not a traditional trade agreement that lowers tariffs, increases market access, reduces costs of production and consumption. They, they, they don't seem to want to do that. We don't see any market access moves uh, at all. Instead, these are agreements that uh, sort of say, well, we have a bunch of domestic problems in common, corruption, tax collections. Let's work on those. Now, Doug, we're going to do a real first on this show because I've never had Cardi B on this show, and I want her. But uh, let's bring a Cardi B tweet on. Cardi B writes, when you all think they're going to announce that we're going into a recession— so let me ask you that. Uh, when are we? When do you think, uh, Mr. Economic Advisor, we're going into a recession? I think the recession talk is is way overblown. Um, the The reality is that the inflation and the hot labor market are the flip side of the same problem. You don't get the inflation without a labor market that hot, and you don't get a labor market that hot without generating some inflation. None of that sounds like a recession to me. So. Uh, Yes, the Federal Reserve is going to raise rates and slow down the economy. It is goal, its goal is, as you mentioned earlier, to have a soft landing, slow growth enough that inflation pressures come down but remain uh, making forward progress. Um, they have a hard problem. That's, that's a hard thing to do. They're doing it in the face of a lot of things that are tough. The tail end of a pandemic, we hope. It's, it's, its path is uncertain. Uh, Ukraine invasions and the impacts on global energy and food markets – a China economy that's really hard to gauge right now, given their public health crisis, uh, that, that all makes the Fed's uh, life much, much harder. And historically, it's been a difficult task. When inflation has been above 4% and unemployment has been below 5%, 
The Fed has never engineered a soft landing. So we're asking them to do something that they haven't historically done without um, having the benefit of, of calm conditions. I still think that this year, there's not a chance we have a recession. 2023, maybe to the second half, mm. there's heightened recession probability. But the premature chatter on recessions, I think, is way out of line. Let me ask you a question about the hot labor market you just referred to. And I don't, I, I have to admit, I don't know the aggregate numbers. I don't know what is real in this area. But I do know that there was a period of time as we were stimulating the economy, as we had extended unemployment benefits, where the incentive structure for workers changed. And we had the so-called great resignation, a lot of people leaving. And so as we look at these historically low unemployment figures, I'm just wondering if they're real. Where are all these workers that used to be in the system that have somewhat disappeared? Do they, do they exist in this country? And what are the implications of that? And is it a function of, you know, basically a, a, a hostile immigration policy essentially out there? What are the dimensions of the hot labor market that we ought to be uh, focusing on? Where did all those workers go? The puzzle of the missing workers is the great conundrum of this moment. Um, you know, lots of people are looking at this, and we go, it's kind of like Casablanca. You round up the usual explanations. Uh, we were paying people to not work. Uh, well, that, that went away last Labor Day, so if that was the problem, it's gone, and we haven't seen the workers return. Uh, we had people had to take care of school kids, and schools were closed, or you were worried they might be closed, so you didn't take a job. You look in the data, people with school-age kids stayed at work more and went back faster than other uh, people did. So that doesn't seem like the answer. We had the retirement conundrum, right? It turns out that uh, a fairly common thing in the United States is people retire. They think about it for about six months. They think, no, I'm going back to work. I think of this as the Walmart greeter problem. You just stay home for a while. You're bored. You say, I'll just go work at Walmart, be a greeter. And so you move back into the labor force. No one becomes a greeter in a pandemic, right? So that, that stopped. But now we've seen that restart. People are now coming back in. So that's not the answer. Um, we have some other things out there that I think are real, and we don't know how big they are. The opioid crisis has really hit prime-age workers in the United States, and the numbers are substantial and, and frightening. And we have this phenomenon known as long COVID, for which there is no definition, but about 30 million Americans report that they have some symptoms that have persisted for a long time, and 10% of them say they can't work because of it. That's 3 million people. So maybe there's something there. But the honest truth, Steve, is I can't tell you where those workers are. No one can. And uh, it, it's, a, it's a part of the supply problems because we just don't have the workers out there to produce goods and services. You know, you know both sides of the political equation. You were head of CBO, which was nonpartisan. Um, you were uh, an advisor to Senator John McCain. And now the American Action Forum, you're out there trying to help you know, all, all parties. there. But I'm just interested in how you would you know, judge and grade um, Republican suggestions right now that are out there. And I often think to myself, what if Donald Trump were president right now? Would the go-go economy that we have, the cheap money, you know, would, would these issues be any different under Donald Trump? And I have to say, honestly, I'm not sure they would. So do you see, how do you critique the Republican response to the president right now? Do they need to up their game? I, I think they have no real answer to the question, what would you do about inflation? And, and the reason is, the things that a Congress can do to slow this economy are things that they're not interested in doing. They're, they're not interested in raising taxes, which would be one way to slow this down. They, they really don't have uh, a lot of recent track record of budgetary integrity, but they're, they're all, you know, newly um, uh, converted to the idea that we have to control government spending, so they, they wouldn't 
um, sort of be doing the stimulus so they wouldn't create the problem. But, but there aren't any real good solutions. In the end, th this is the Federal Reserve's problem. Uh, the Fed should be allowed to deal with it to the best of its ability. And, and hands off the Fed is a good thing for all parties at this point. But as I said before, once you're in a situation like this, there are no good choices. And so there are no obvious politically easy policies. You know, one part of the discussion today was really focused on what are the blind spots that our policy world has? And, and, if, and if this was one, I'm just interested in terms of the many eras of economic uh, performance we've had in the United States. What are other like, you know, we had the real estate bubble. We had the subprime crisis. We've, you mentioned a couple of worries about other bubbles here. We have a growing national government debt problem. We also yep. had a bubble in private debt um, that, that caused some issues. But I'm just interested without necessarily ascribing and saying that these things are out there. What are the other kinds of potential blind spots that an, administ an administration might have that you think we should be discussing? So, so this is the analytic error the Biden administration made. Uh, this recession was not a 20th century recession, which are usually income events, and where we developed our tools, unemployment insurance, discretionary tax cuts, sending checks to replace income that was lost in the recession. It's also not a 21st century recession, which is largely been financial market events. The dot-com bubble bursts and we have a, a, a small recession. We get the huge subprime uh, mortgage problem and financial crisis. We get a big recession. This was the virus and people unable to go spend their money. They couldn't get on a plane, stay in a hotel, go to a show. All of that disappeared overnight. In 2020, at the peak of this, income rose in the aggregate. Wealth rose in the aggregate. All of the capacity to spend was there, and people just couldn't go do it. And indeed, if you look in the data, the piece that was missing in the U.S. economy was spending by affluent Americans. They were the ones who typically would have taken a fancy vacation or gone to shows on Broadway and traveled a lot, and they weren't doing it. They weren't going out to dinner. They weren't doing any of those things. There was nothing about that problem that could be fixed by the things that the administration did. You send checks to poor people, it doesn't make rich people spend. You, you, you expand the unemployment insurance system, they're not unemployed. The problem they had was one that could only be fixed by a strong public health response that allowed people to go out and spend. That was it. But they ran a playbook that was inappropriate for the problem they had, and now we have the inflation. And that's it in a nutshell. Well, we'll have to leave it there. Economist Douglas Holtz-Eakin, former director of the Congressional Budget Office and current president of the American Action Forum. I always benefit in my discussions with you, and I'm sure my viewers did as well. Thank you so much. Thanks, Evan. So what's the bottom line? Americans were already stressing about their toxic political environment, and now inflation makes things so much worse by shaking folks' confidence in their economy as well. Many blame rising costs on the war in Europe or tack it on to the coronavirus. But we can't ignore that America's leaders were happy to have a go-go economy with cheap money and super low interest rates from the Federal Reserve. America has had cheap, easy-to-get money for a long time, long before Ukraine and long before Wuhan. As long as Americans keep consuming, prices are going to keep going up because the supply is limited out there right now. and will be that way for a while. Policymakers are going to have to gut-punch that consumption, usually by pushing interest rates up. But if that doesn't work, what happens is a big recession may come and solve the problem. And that's going to be painful with huge job losses and tougher times. The question then will be how Joe Biden's White House leads. So far, we've seen a lot more blame game than leadership and a lot more blind spots than vision. And that's the bottom line.